Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. My name is Drew, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Um, Just I want to say thank you to everybody who has um, kind of jumped in today. We are man down on deck. Uh, So pray for Terry and Tammy as they are away this weekend and some of our other leaders. We seem to be scattered today. Um, So thank you to everybody else who stepped up and, and made this morning happen. We are in the middle of a series that is going to take us through the fall into the Advent season. We're looking at the book of Deuteronomy, but the way we're walking through the book is by taking each of the Ten Commandments and looking at a particular command and then going to a passage of Scripture uh, to kind of uh, exegete that command as the book of Deuteronomy kind of fleshes it out and Moses gives the people instruction as to how they're to live as God's people, a people holy to the Lord. So if you have your worship folder, you'll see there that on the insert we have printed the worst, the, the scripture passage for this morning. It is very long. Uh, get used to that. Probably in this series we're going to have some long passages of scripture to read because there's so much material here. But in this, this morning in particular, it's very important that we get a scope of what God is doing and saying to his people in both Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 14. Um, beginning in Deuteronomy 5 with the third command, And then going to Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 14, let's read together from God's Word. It's on the screen behind me. It's printed in your worship folder. If you have a Bible, you can try to keep up in all the different places we're going to be reading. Deuteronomy 5. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in the heavens above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's the third command. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. From Deuteronomy 12. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim, the asherah poles, with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household, and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we were doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. That's going to be an important phrase. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, you are, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. 
For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done to their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Deuteronomy 14, for you are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. But you, for you, are people holy to the Lord your God. This is God's word. Um, <clears throat> just some house cleaning things as we come to this third commandment. The church has often lumped the first two commandments in the Ten Commandment list together around the theme of idolatry. So the first commandment, if you are familiar with the scriptures and with these in particular, is against putting up other loves or desires as rivals to the Lord and giving our hearts to those things. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, which is listed here in verses 8 through 10, right at the top there, is against trying to take hold of God and own him or control him or domesticate him. By making a graven image of him, he's invisible and infinite. And whenever you take something that is invisible and infinite and try to make an image of it, or when you take, you know, something that is that is infinite and assign finite categories to it, you're inevitably guilty of detracting at some level. Now, the third commandment, this third commandment, if you'll look there so we can see it one more time in the first paragraph up at the top of your page with the scripture passages, verse 11 You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's what we've got to go after this morning. And we 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 joke this week, the pastors in our little network of churches, we get together every week because we're preaching on the same passages. And we joke and we said, you know, we've always we've always heard and we've always thought that this third commandment means, you know, you couldn't cuss or you needed to substitute gosh for God. You with me? Right. And there's just this 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 such an attempt to really reduce what's being asked of us here to the, you know, something as simple as that. But if you think about it. What does it mean to put your name on something? I mean, because that's the metaphor, that's the image that we're that we're getting here. So my kids, my kids get a new toy, you know, at Christmas or it's worse. I have two boys and two girls. So a lot of times. You know, it's just easier. Moms, dads, you with me? You know, if you have two, just just buy them the same thing so that they each can have one and there's no fighting. But when they do that, when they each get the same toy, what's the first thing they go and do? They find a Sharpie and they put their name on the toy. Right? What they're doing is they're saying, this belongs to me. This is mine. And the nature of the covenant relationship that God has established with us is, is this. He's put his name on us. He's claiming ownership over us. And we, in turn, we have to take his name. I mean, that's what Moses is saying. You know, that's what the Lord is revealing here through this third commandment. We have to take his name. We have to take his name upon ourselves. We have to take upon ourselves the obligation to carry his name and to represent him. Or the biblical imagery is to image him. Um, And so I ask this question in your outline, if you can see that there. How is the honor and the glory of of God's name tied to the way we live as his people. Because you see, if God has put his name on us, 
He's claimed ownership over us. And if the response to that is that we have to take his name, then this is going to begin to make sense because I've been around you, some of you parents, who understand this very clearly. Uh, what it means that that taking the Lord's name means that you're putting the Lord's name is being tied to your life. His honor and his glory and his holiness is being tied to the way that we live. And I, his reputation is on the line. And I've heard, I've been around, I've been around and I laugh because we do it with our kids. You know, you're going somewhere and there's going to be lots of people there. And so before you get out of the van, you turn to your kids and what do you say? The name of our family is at stake. You're representing, you're representing the Lord Jesus Christ and Church of the Redeemer and the Bennett family and, you know, you know what I'm saying? Don't step out of line. So we understand this, right? What it means to take someone's name, to have responsibility to bear the Lord's name in our lives. And so the larger catechism, which we read just a minute ago, exegetes this third command exactly this way by calling us in the language there to a holy profession and conversation or way of life that is in keeping with this responsibility. In other words, live in such a way that you bring honor and glory to the Lord's name. And to take the Lord's name in vain then means that you take it in unreality. You, you, you don't take it in reality, you take it in vain. In other words, you claim in, to belong to him, but then you do not live in such a way that is in keeping with that profession. It means to take his name in unreality, to claim to worship and to serve him, and then to not live accordingly. And so the larger catechism says we break the third commandment by acting hypocritically, by, and I like this, I like the language, by either being ashamed of him or being ashamed to him. And so this morning, what we're going to see in Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 14 is just this. What it means to be a holy people. And what heart attitude you must possess to live as a holy people, those two things, what it means to be a holy people and then what heart attitude we must possess in order to live as a holy people. And what we're going to see is that you have to know him as Lord and as Savior. So let's work through this together, beginning with just this. What does it mean that God calls us a holy people here? Okay. Let's work some, through some of the particulars of this passage, and this will be the longest point in our sermon this morning. Okay, the big idea here is God desired for Israel to be holy. That word, though, carries such negative connotations in our culture because we think of it as a synonym for self-righteous or smug or arrogant, but that wasn't the idea at all. Now, to be holy means to be set apart or to be different, but the mo more important idea, if you look there in... Um, down at the very bottom of your page in verse 2, Deuteronomy 14, 2, the, the greater idea was that they were to be his treasured possession. Israel was to be God's special treasured possession out of all the peoples on the earth. In other words, the Lord loved them and wanted a relationship with them and it had a special place for them in his plan for the world. And every detail of their life was to be in keeping with their place in his plan for the world. And so when the Bible calls you and I holy, <clears throat> it means that God has taken hold of our lives for a different purpose and he subsequently orders our whole life to fulfill that purpose. Now, that's what we see the Lord doing here with Israel. And two things, and you'll see that in your outline as well. The first, we see the Lord ordering the corporate cultic life of his people, and then he orders the private religious life of his people as well. So let's let's start by just seeing this that first the Lord orders the culprit cultic 
life of his people. If you look in Deuteronomy 12, it's the middle chunk of the passage that's on your sheet there. You'll see that I underlined a verse. I underlined a phrase in verse four and I underlined it uh, the same phrase again in verse 31. There scholars who know more about the Bible <clears throat> than I do call this an inclusio. It's a literary device. It's a way of, in other words, at the beginning of the chapter, the writer makes a statement. He ends the chapter by making the same statement, and it's his way of saying that everything in between the two statements is really summarized by that statement. It's kind of like a thesis, right? When you're in school and your English teacher tells you in your opening paragraph, state your thesis, and then in your concluding paragraph, restate your thesis so that there's a, there's a hook that kind of takes you through the entire essay you're writing that kind of lets everybody know what it is you're writing about. And so if you see that phrase there, <clears throat> Moses says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Verse 31, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Literally, it is, you shall not do as they do. And so the Lord is warning the people that because they belong to him, they're to conduct their corporate worship life in a markedly different way from that of the other pagan nations. They, the way they worshiped together, in other words, and the rituals and festivals that made up that worship was to be an expression of their holiness. So we see a couple of things here. First, that Israel was to worship Yahweh and him alone. They were to be utterly intolerant of the worship of other gods. They were to look at verse four or verse three. They were to tear down and to destroy the places of idol worship and tear down the altars. And there in verse three, he says that they were to erase the names of the other gods from the land and replace them with Yahweh's name. And I would just say to you, that has huge Huge implications for us as we live in a time of similar temptation to religious syncretism in our in our culture and in our day. This text, but really there are many others in the Bible that do it a lot better than this text does. This text challenges the notion that all the names and all of the faces of religious traditions are valid, that, you know, you can find salvation in the gods of Hinduism or the path of Buddhism or in Allah. But Israel's worship was to trumpet to the other nations And this is the way one writer says it. One true revelation by one true God known by one saving name through one particular people. And in our culture, all of the different names for what we could call God in all of the different religions have some validity, but none of them is uniquely or ultimately true or real. The only name to be rejected. Do you know this? The only name to be rejected in our culture is the one who refused to accept its own relativity and coexist happily with the others. And that is the one thing the Lord refuses to do. And if we're his people, we better understand that as he was preparing Israel in this text, so he's preparing us that our belief in the God of the Bible will create the unavoidable clash with the other religions of the world and especially with the pluralistic agenda of our society. They will call us intolerant, and demonize our intolerance and do so in the name of love and brotherhood and tolerance. And the irony is, is that it's really just intolerance of intolerance. And so they were to worship the Lord and him alone, but they were also to worship him according to his revelation and not their own imaginations. You see, there's a general principle, and if I could just, so for the sake of time, sum up everything that the Lord is saying in Deuteronomy 12, it's just this. He's saying to his people, you can't worship whenever and wherever you want, and you can't do it flippantly or half-heartedly. The Lord is ordering, or he's centralizing their worship, and they must worship in response to his revelation. 
And we're going to get into this next week, okay? So we can kind of pass by it. We can take that pitch. But the good application for us would be something like this. We're commanded to worship every Lord's Day with God's people. It's not optional. It's not negotiable. He's claimed sovereign authority over all of our lives, but especially over our Sundays. And he commands us to gather together to worship. And you can't do it alone. I mean, it'd be fun if you could. I mean, I know that, you know, go have Internet church. Right. Your participation in the corporate worship life of the church should not be determined by what is convenient or what works with your schedule. The Lord has commanded it. And so we are called to worship according to his revelation and not and not our own imaginations. But you see what's fascinating in here is not only does the Lord order the private religious life of his people, the, the public corporate worship life of his people, but he also orders their private religious lives as well. And we see that in Deuteronomy 14. And I would I would encourage you if you want to if you want to uh, have a good time, you ought to go home this afternoon, take Deuteronomy 14, go through. And I didn't print it for you because I, I wanted to just for sheer uh, comedic value. Of of the the detail with which Moses goes into the kinds of foods that Israel could eat and the kinds of foods they couldn't eat and figuring out what the rationale for all of those things is. But what the Lord is teaching us is that his authority is so far reaching and so pervasive in our lives that he can even he even has something to say about we, what we are to eat and what we are not to eat. And I just want to say to you, in a general way, holiness <clears throat> has implications for what kind of car you drive and the clothes you wear and the places you shop. It's not just the big stuff. It's even the little stuff that has ethical implications. And so what we see here is Moses is giving the people in, in Deuteronomy 14 a list of appropriate things to eat appropriate insects to eat inappropriate insects to eat any insect is inappropriate to eat in my opinion and you can I get an amen anybody with me you know appropriate birds inappropriate appropriate fish inappropriate all these things <laughs> and and it's just it's it's striking to me because there's a lot of different theories people put out about why some of the things you know, God lists is unacceptable and why are some of the things acceptable and what's all of you doing? You know, maybe there's a connection of certain animals with pagan cults or idol worship or maybe, you know, the, the, the most um, widely kind of expressed opinion is, well, maybe there are health reasons. You know, we know it's not good to eat pig, but I eat pig. I mean, you know, bacon's good, right? Bacon, bacon's, everything's better with bacon, right? You know what I'm saying? I like vegetables as long as they have bacon in them, you know, whatever, whatever that might be. <clears throat> so, amen. Thank you, Fred. I got an amen. That's great. You know, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, really, nobody really knows. And at the end of the day, you have to look at this list and you say, you know, why does this really matter? I mean, really? Why does this really matter? And it reminded, reminded me of a story in a book. If you want a, a hoot, there's a book by a guy named A.J. Jacobs called The Year of Living Biblically, and he's a guy who just said, I'm going to take the Bible and I'm going to live it literally for 365 days. Fascinating. <clears throat> so he gets to the part where, in the Bible, it talks about not wearing clothes <clears throat> with mixed fibers. So the Bible prohibits God's people from wearing clothes that have both linen and wool in them. So he's in New York, and in New York, uh, if you're an Orthodox Jew, there are, there are guys that you can call who will come over, and so he calls this man, his name was Mr. Berkowitz, and Mr. Berkowitz came over to his house and brought his microscope, 
and went through his closet, examining every piece of clothing he owned with a microscope. Because you can only tell through a microscope whether or not, you know, there's mixed fibers in there. And as he's leaving, he asks Mr. Berkowitz, you know, why? You know, why would God care if we wore mixed fibers? And I quote, this is A.J. Jacobs, who's a, who's a pagan, secular Jew. He says, the answer is we don't know. There are theories. Bottom line, though, we have no idea. Mr. Berkowitz's answer to me was, this is a law God gave us. We, we have to trust him. He's all powerful. We're like children. Sometimes parents have laws children don't understand, like when you tell a child not to touch fire and he doesn't understand why, but it's good for him. And some say it's more crucial to follow the laws of God that are inexplicable because it shows you're committed, that you have great faith. Now, please hear me. I'm not, I'm not suggesting we go and, and, and begin to rigidly apply the dietary laws. I'm not eating insects this afternoon, okay? And I'll probably eat pig at some point. But there's an inclusio in this chapter as well. And if you look, I, I made sure to print it there for you. If you look down at the very bottom in verse 2, and then again in verse 21, the Lord shows us what he's really getting at in prescribing all of these rules to the people about what they eat. He wants a people that are holy. He wants a holy people. He wants us to be his treasured possession, to live completely for him and in obedience to him. We have to have our lives governed and ordered by his will and desire and plan and purpose. And that's what set Israel apart from the other nations. Their wholehearted commitment to the Lord. Even in the smallest details of their lives. And so Christopher Wright is correct, I think. In meditating on these obscure food laws, he says, and I quote, the food laws were a daily reminder to Israel of their status and role in God's purpose and of the consequent call to holiness in other more morally significant areas of personal and social life. Holiness was woven into everyday life. Every meal should have reminded the Israelite family of God's commitment to them and their commitment to God. Now listen to this phrase, a God who governs the kitchen should not easily be forgotten in the rest of life. So so even in the smallest detail, what we're going to see as we continue to journey through Deuteronomy is God is ordering our life because if if there's a God who can govern the kitchen, then he should not be easily forgotten even in all the rest of our lives. And so you see, it matters how you live. That's the point. It matters how you live. But your heart attitude matters more. And so how do you get the heart attitude to take the name of the Lord in reality and not in vain? Because that's where we've got to end up this morning is we've got to say, okay, if this is, you know, the ridiculous nature of what God is calling us to, uh, the utter subjection to his will and authority and purpose and desire and plan for my life, what kind of heart attitude do I have to come into in order to really embrace that with joy? And there are two things, and they're going to be very quick. And the first is just this. You have to first know him as Lord. You have to bow your knee to his authority. You have to give up your independence. You you take the Lord's name in vain unless you're willing to say, show me what your will is and I will do it. I don't care how I feel. I don't care what my friends say. I don't care what popular opinion is. You're my king. If you look in verse 8 of chapter 12, there in the middle of your... I know it's confusing. You'll see a very important phrase that helps us gain insight into how our hearts work and why we resent God's authority. Moses says there, you're not to do when you go into the land as we're doing here. And here's the phrase, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. And this becomes very important 
later in Israel's history. In the book of Judges, it becomes a refrain that is repeated four or five times in the book, saying there's no king in Israel and everyone did as he saw fit. And in other words, there was no unifying authority structure and the result was moral, civic, political, social chaos. I mean, if you're a project manager or if you're a boss at work, have you ever been a part of a project where the team was was this, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes? You with me? They have a word for that. It's called hell. Mom, what what happens at home, moms? If if your if your kids adopt this, every you know, here's the plan for the morning. Everyone do as sees fit as they see fit in their own eyes. How's that going to work? Good luck. Lisa's laughing. But 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 in real in, in reality, it describes the notion of freedom that operates in our culture. It's what we're all shooting for. We're all shooting. We want to have enough money. Um, all the money we need and to be free from any constraints so that, you know, we might come to a time in our life when we can do whatever we want and to live not only doing what feels, you know, we want to do only what feels right. I mean, most people in our culture are working for the days when they will finally be able to do what is right in their own eyes. That's our motivation for getting up and going to work every day. And that one little phrase really describes the predominant cultural religious sensibility in our culture only you can decide what is right and wrong for you. And so find out what feels right and do it. But do you understand the implications for living that way? It makes it impossible to be morally disciplined because there's no authority other than your own opinion. Obedience becomes pragmatic as long as it works. But the moment I disagree, or the moment I'm uncomfortable, or I'm inconvenienced, or I don't like what God tells me to do, then I feel no obligation to obey because the ultimate authority is my own judgment. That's not knowing him as your Lord. See, agreement is not obedience. Obedience is a willingness to have your will crossed. And I hear Ashley say this to my children all the time, and she's brilliant. She knows this stuff better than I do. She'll tell, she'll tell them, you know, you're not obeying until you don't want to do what I ask you to do, and you do it anyway. Or I hear her say to, to moms and husbands, wives all the time about their husbands, you know, it's not, ladies, it's not submission until you don't agree with something or you don't like something, but you do it anyway. Obedience means you give God the right to cross your will, to allow your will to give way to his will. God, this feels like this is right for me, but you say it's wrong, so I'm going with what you think, not what I think. You can cross my will. And obedience doesn't happen until you think it's terrible. It's a terrible idea, but you do it anyway. You say, I want this, but you say no, and you go with what he says above your own desires. So let me ask you, who in your life have you given permission to cross your will? Because in order to, because in order to take his name in reality and not in vain, you have to know him as Lord, and that has to flesh itself out in your life. At some level. But really quickly. And finally. If you want to take God's name in reality and not in vain. You have to know him as Lord. You have to bow your knee to his authority. He's king. But secondly. You have to know him as savior. You have to grasp grace. There's two ways to obey God's will. The first is so that you will be accepted. Through your obedience. The second is because you have already been conclusively accepted in love. And you have to remember the order here. You see salvation comes first. God first rescued Israel from Egypt and then he gave them the law 
He, God doesn't give us the law in order to save us. He saves us first, and then he gives us the law to show us how to live as a redeemed people. And the reason I chose such a long passage for our sermon text is because I wanted you to be able to see the story that is being woven into this text. Even as he's giving all this legislation here, Moses is telling a story. He's reminding them of where they've come from. I've brought you out of Egypt, the Lord says. And then he's reminding them, and he's taking you into this land You're here, but don't forget where you've come from and don't forget where he's taking you. And it's in the context of that narrative flow that he begins to give Israel these laws. And so there's a narrative, there's a story about how God's saving his people and obedience is always in the Bible, a matter of response and gratitude within a personal relationship to the Lord. It's not blind adherence to a long list of rules. Grace, salvation comes first, then obedience. So in order to take the Lord's name in reality, you have to keep things in that order, because if you don't, then you'll be obeying, not not because of what God has done to save you, you'll obey to try to save yourself. And that's not taking the Lord's name in reality. He's savior, not you. Do you see that? See that? To take the Lord's name in reality and not in vain, you have to obey as a response to God's grace and not as a means of achieving it. We're all saved by grace and not by works of the law. That's the consistent teaching of the Bible. And, and, and think, keep in mind, the ultimate work of God's salvation sent Jesus into the world to die the traitor's death that, you, that should have been ours and to live in perfect submission to his Father's will. Our salvation story is even more remarkable than this because God himself came in Jesus to put away our sin and make us holy. We're holy because of what he's done. Not because of what we do. So you have to know him as Lord. And then you have to know him as Savior. But let me just ask, and we need to finish up. So let me just ask three questions as you really wrestle with what it means that God would call you to holiness from this passage this morning. How do we apply what we're learning here and really try to get some feet to it in our lives? Let me just ask three questions. And then I'm not going to really explain them. I'm just going to ask. Number one, is your life consistent with your profession? Or are there inconsistencies? Is your life consistent with your profession? G.K. Chesterton once said, the only strong argument against Christianity is Christians. Jonathan and I were talking about this week. When you're in the hospital recovering from surgery, it matters how you treat the nurses and the doctors. Why people are laughing at that. Maybe they've, maybe they've been in the hospital and seen that, right? God's name, his name is on the line in how we live, even in those situations. So is there is your life consistent with your profession? Number two, have you thought through the small things and not just the big things? Holiness is a matter of even what you eat. <clears throat> and then thirdly, do you remember a couple of weeks ago when Jonathan set this whole thing up and he said, you know, I want you to live in such a way that when your children ask you why we do these things, you tell them the story of your salvation from Egypt. But I want to ask you, are your children asking you why? Your children come home from school and say, Mommy, you know, why do we do that? Dad, why why don't we why don't we do what what they do? Is your life so fundamentally different from the patterns of the rest of the world that your kids are looking for an explanation? We are people holy to the Lord. So let's pray and ask him to come and continue to work out that holiness in our lives. As these guys come, we sing together. Heavenly Father beautiful son, spirit of grace and truth. Thank you for bringing sinners to come to you. Jesus, we confess to you 
that we, our knees are, are arthritic and rusty and they do not bend well in submission to your authority. Uh, we do not like the idea that you are our Lord, that you are our King and that we owe you allegiance in every area of our life. And we confess that oftentimes we like to take the title of Savior upon ourselves and trust and rest in our own good works and not in the work that you have finished on our behalf to save us. And so we pray this morning in the interest of making us a holy people who live lives taking your name, not in vain, but in reality and living in keeping with the profession of faith that we have made because your glory is at stake. We pray that you would come, that you would come and drive home to our hearts the reality of your lordship and the reality of your love and that your lordship would call us to obedience and that your love would melt our hearts and prepare them as good soil for the word to come. So even now as we sing, sing to the king. May we sing with faith in what you have done to save us and in the hope of what you're coming to do when you return to take us to be with your father. And may it produce lives of great joy and great obedience for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if your if your faith is in Jesus, you you claim to have taken His name upon you. The promise of the benediction is is that before before you were even born, the Scripture says, um, before before you could have done good or bad, before there was any record of righteousness or of sin, that God uh, elected and chose you from the foundations of the earth, that He has put His name on you. So the promise of the benediction is is that as you go. Um, he he is he has written his he has written his your name in the palms of his hand. He has written his name on you. You belong to him. You're yours. You're his. And so the promise of the benediction is is that you can go uh, feeling his power and his presence in your life. And so receive the benediction as you go to to take his name, not in vain, but in reality. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Mm-hmm.